You're listening to WZBC Newton, 90.3 FM, Boston College. I'm Brian Carpenter. This is Free Association. We're hosting a special tonight on the music of Raymond Scott called Imagination and Innovation. You just heard the piece Egyptian Barn Dance from 1938, Raymond Scott Quintet. Erwin Schuster in there as well, talking about the rediscovery of Raymond Scott in the late 80s and early 90s. A really fascinating story. Um, Jeff Winter is here of the Raymond Scott Archives. Jeff, uh, thank you again for being here. Hi, Brian. Uh, let's talk about his biography for a little bit. Um, okay. He was born Harry Warnow in 1908 to Russian immigrants. Is that right? You got it. Okay. And he and his older brother were musical prodigies. Raymond started on the piano. Um, his dad was an amateur violinist who owned a music shop. Mm-hmm. And I read as a boy he kind of tinkered around with, with turntables. Is that right? Yeah. Well, all the things in his dad's music shop were of interest to him. Turntables, sheet music instruments, records, but the thing that grabbed his attention the most were were the player pianos. I see. Which were invented around the turn of the century and maybe have been the most complex music technology in his world as a boy. He appeared to be fascinated by watching it perform automatically. You know, there is something intriguing to a little kid about it looks like a ghost is sitting there playing, you know. And beyond that, it was a machine that never made a mistake. You know, so, you know, a player piano roll with the punch holes, it's not unlike punch cards that were used throughout the 60s or 70s, right? right? Which he used later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So he reportedly taught himself to play piano by sitting at a player piano, placing his little fingers on the keys. As the ghost as they would was, depress. yeah, as oh, the wow, ghost was playing, <laughs> and follow along, you know, as best as he could, right. and I believe that it had the ability to adjust the speed, you know. That's so true. he'd maybe for something complex, he'd make it slower until he could increase the speed and match the mechanical precision of it, and then go faster than than the normal speed. Right. So this would be a key f- foundation for him musically and in terms of technology, because. The precision of the machine, you know, a device that never made a mistake. And this is what he aspired to, and this is what he demanded of his human musicians in the future. Right. He would become uh, a very, very much of a drill master in rehearsal. Yeah, exactly. Now, we know he was adept at at mathematics and engineering, and this is pretty obvious to to, to us because we know that he he built his own instruments later in life. But... um, and he graduated from Brooklyn Technical School, and then I read he planned to study engineering. Yeah, is that right? And then he, and then with an interesting twist here, his brother convinced mm-hmm. him to to go into music. Is that right? Yeah, he wanted to study engineering, but his brother, who was already a a famous band leader, he by the way he would later become Frank Sinatra's band leader. His brother. Yeah, I see. Um, he persuaded Raymond to go into music instead. He basically bribed him by buying him a Steinway piano and paying his tuition to Juilliard. I see. That's a good bribe. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> um, but, you know, Raymond still never gave up the, the notion of pursuing technology and engineering. He eventually found a way to, to marry both worlds together, and, and he continued in that vein through his entire life, music and technology. Right. We hear that in a lot of the, in a lot of the music, yeah. especially in the latter years. Now, eventually, Harry became Raymond Scott. Can you tell us about, do you know anything behind that story, why he changed his name? Yeah, well, his, um, like I said, his older brother was famous first and using the name Warno, Mark Warno. I see, right. So the first time Raymond used the name Raymond Scott was only to publish 
a composition on paperwork that was filed, you know. He used that as his pen name, stage name. But everyone still knew he was Harry Warno. And he made no secret about it. It was just a stage name at first. Um, part of the story goes that he, did, he wanted to avoid charges of nepotism, you know, that he's there only because of his older brother. Now, later, after, his, after he uh, married his second wife, he legally changed his name to Raymond Scott and used it full time. I see. So it was years before that when he actually yeah. was using the name for compositions and so forth. Right. Right. Exactly. So now at CBS, uh, there was a producer there named Herb Rosenthal, mm-hmm. and he offered him a chance to form uh, the quintet to yeah. explore these these ideas. And he brought in clarinetist Pete uh, Pumiglio, mm-hmm. drummer Johnny Williams, who's the, the father of film composer right. John Williams, who you've interviewed um, yeah. through the documentary, saxophonist Dave Harris, bassist Lou Shube. Is it Shuby? I think it's Shuby, yeah. And... Uh, trumpeter Dave Wade, and this was a sextet, right? It, but he called it the Raymond Scott Quintet, and he would he would do this a lot. He would kind of play with yeah. play with titles and play with words. He had a very mischievous yes. Kind of, uh, in, in this instance, he he was very clever about giving the, the press quotes and things that were memorable and funny. And in the case of this question about quintet versus sextet, the answer he gave was, um, well, he wants us to keep our minds on the music. So we're not using the word sex today. <laughs> right. Because um, of the word sex. Yeah, exactly. In, in, so, in the word. But, you know, later he had a group uh, called The Secret Seven, which had like 12 members or, you know, whatever. He sure, just, right. for such a genius, that he couldn't really count. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, the, the way this quintet came about was he was first staff pianist at CBS in his brother's orchestra. And he was playing piano, and that was his role only. He was not writing original music they were not performing his music and after about a year of this he became really frustrated and bored mm. with playing the standards you know playing other people's music things that he was bored with i guess and so he came to rosenthal and said you know why can't we play something new i'm really tired of this and he said well people want to hear the classics because they're familiar with them they like them and Raymond said, well, I think it's possible to write new music that people like the first time they hear it. And Rosenthal said, all right, wise guy, take a couple of guys out of the orchestra and show me what you're talking about. Demonstrate this new music to me. And so he did. He rehearsed for months. And we have a quote from him saying um, his group wouldn't be ready for a couple of years because it took them eight months to get one song right. <laughs> I read that right. Yeah. Now these were these were guys out of the CBS Radio Orchestra, is that right. right? Okay, yeah. And what what an incredible group! I mean, the you know we we talk with Dave Harrington of Kronos Quartet mm-hmm. later, and he's just astounded by the the they they play it so commandingly. Yes. And it's just an amazing uh, um, amazing group. But you can't imagine anyone else playing that that music. Yeah. Well, he was lucky enough to be in a position where he could look at the full orchestra and choose which of the you know that clarinetist, that saxophone, right. and so on. And he apparently did a good job of it. Yeah, he, I mean, he nailed it. I mean, he, was, he was a young man at the time, you know? He was like 27 or something. Well, I want to look at um, this incredible Raymond Scott composition called Celebration on the Planet Mars. Okay. And it comes off of this, this uh, compilation that you did called mm-hmm. Microphone Music. And I love this one because it illustrates the, the structural complexity of these early pieces. There's a lot going on here. Um, and this is all under three minutes. He's got five or six themes or sections here grafted together. Some of these sections have a lot of intricate backgrounds going on, uh, and again, this is all all happening under under uh, under three minutes. So I, I I sort of liken them to sort of early early miniatures from Raymond Scott that would give you kind of a 
an idea of where he would where he would go. Um, this again is 1938 Raymond Scott Quintet celebration on the planet Mars. <laughs> founder, artistic director, violinist with Kronos Quartet. I, like probably millions of people, first heard um, Raymond Scott's music without knowing who the composer was uh, on cartoons when I was growing up in the 1950s. You hear the performances that, that his group gave, and they are just fantastic. I mean, the, the ensemble sense is, is just wonderful. <laughs> staggeringly good as a, as a ensemble player I can recognize really great ensemble playing and, and uh, uh, Raymond Scott's group had it no question about it and apparently the rehearsals were very rigorous and um, you know I, I think that that kind of vividness of performance has helped the music a lot I mean because people um, you know when, when you come in contact with it with those early recordings and those performances, it's just so commandingly played and vivid and 
uh, I mean, it, it goes right along with the music itself. And so, uh, you know, everything is working together to create a, a very strong image, I think. As I was uh, beginning to explore new instruments and alternative ways of making sounds, and it's something I've been interested in, you know, ever since I started Kronos, really. But but somehow uh, Raymond Scott fit in as as an American original in the same way that George Crumb does, or or uh, Harry Parch, or. Uh, you know, lots of people, Leonard Bernstein, I mean, just, just the quality of great melody writing, you know, and, and I, I remember saying to Mitzi that, 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 that I had hoped we could meet Raymond because it, um, you know, if Kronos would have been around 30 years earlier, then, then he should have been writing for us. You know? <laughs> Thank you. 
You're listening to WZBC 90.3 FM, Boston College. I'm Brian Carpenter. This is Free Association. We're hosting a special on the music of Raymond Scott called Imagination and Innovation. You just heard the original uh, Raymond Scott Quintet performing their piece, Dinner Music for a Pack of Hungry Cannibals, and just before that was the Kronos Quartet arrangement of that. Um, uh, Before that, the piece Oil Gusher from the Raymond Scott Quintet, 1939, and to top the set off was Celebration on the Planet Mars, Uh, the same group, violinist uh, David Harrington of Kronos in there speaking as well. Jeff Winter is here of the Raymond Scott Archives. Uh, Thank you again for being here. Thank you, Brian. so that's that's kind of it. We were talking about dinner music, this particular piece, and it's really interesting that a lot of these pieces fall into what I think you mentioned is ABA. There's yeah. two two different, really two very different sounding compositions kind of grafted right. together. Mm-hmm. And you said that you heard you heard an early rehearsal of this of this piece. Is that right? Oh yeah. In this instance, the way he transitions from the first fast section into the slower rhythm in the middle is through a, a drum solo, right. a little solo, maybe just a pattern. And we have a, a disc where you hear the dialogue between Raymond Scott and Johnny Williams. He's trying to teach him how to, to slow it down. And I guess he doesn't like what Johnny's doing. <laughs> and he, he gets kind of irritated. You hear him say, now don't start up with me now, just play, you know, play it. And they start speaking in this drum language. And he says, no, it's not dibba dabba dubba dabba. It's dubba dabba dibba dabba. <laughs> <laughs> and but they're very serious about it, you know. They're using this completely nonsensical language, but it's very tense. Well, it's interesting because when we get into this a little bit later in some of the interviews, is that he rehearsed um, with this band for many, many hours at yeah. a time, and and even composed on the band. He didn't notate this music. That's which right. Is really interesting. That's something we should point out: is all this quintet music we're hearing, it's all been memorized. No, nobody in the band was reading sheet music. That's amazing. It is amazing. It's yeah. it's almost impossible to believe, uh, but it's true. Raymond had a theory that they couldn't play fast enough if they were using part of their brain power with their eyes to read sheet music. He said, you play faster if you skip the eyes. And uh, I've talked to musicians who totally understand that. They, they agree with him. This music, that, what's so amazing about it, of course, is the music is so intricate. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so many things going on, and yet they've all memorized it because yeah. there's, there's no notation. It's actually easier to do that without bringing in notation because if you bring in notation, right. then you're... I think that's what Raymond's point was. Right. You know, He knew the result he wanted, and he was willing to do whatever it took to get it, and apparently he got what he wanted. You know, Right, right. I mean, the, and, and of course, these, these performances are just like David Harrington was saying, are mm-hmm. so, uh, so exciting and so commandingly played and yeah. so... Uh, just so virtuosic. Yeah. They were they were memorizing this music. And fantastic musicians to begin with. Yeah. Right, right. Well, let's play a few more pieces here by the quintet. Uh, we have a little contest for our listeners. I'm going to play a, a set of four tunes, and the first person to call in and correctly name two of them wins one of our rewards here. We've got a Raymond Scott figurine and Clavivox uh, um, uh, and a set of electronic music put together by uh, Jeff here. This is a um, like a toy figurine set with um, a CD that's unique to this product. A Japanese toy company contacted me in 2006, I believe, with the idea of doing this project, and a couple years later, it came out in, in uh, for Raymond Scott's 100th birthday. And it's a cool little thing. It's a cool package. Yeah. yeah they had made a Bob Moog one first, and 
they wanted Raymond to be the second in their Genius Inventor series. And the CD is uh, has some of his demonstrations of the electronic music. Yeah, there's a few things on there that aren't on any other CD. And um, also the first track is the quintet. So it's, it's a little EP with an attempt to sort of do an overview of his whole career, you know. Great. Well, here we go. Raymond Scott Quintet, 1937. You're listening to WZBC 90.3 FM. My name is Will Friedwald. I write about music. You know, writing about Raymond from a purely jazz perspective, when that is what your objective is, to talk about jazz, then, yeah, Raymond is a footnote. I mean, he's not necessarily, you know, every, not everything he did is describable as jazz, and um, or, you know, should be. I think the problem is that Raymond is being judged by standards that are irrelevant to him. 
you know, if he wanted to make jazz, and at different points in his career he did, he did it perfectly well, but that was not the objective with the uh, quintet. It's like going to see a Western when you're expecting a sci-fi movie, and then you give it a bad review because you say there's no spaceships and ray guns. Well, you know, it's a Western. They're not supposed to be spaceships and ray guns. And I think that was part of the issue is that uh, the people that did write about the music of the 1930s and 40s always had this jazz bias. This is not material for jam sessions. This is not guys blowing on changes. And for the same reason, Raymond's tunes, um, they're really not used by other jazz musicians. You know, you don't find Zoot Sims playing Powerhouse. You know, sometimes you find big bands will do an interesting arrangement of it, but they're not material for jam sessions. It's not Honeysuckle Rose. It's not Fats Waller. It's not Duke Ellington. discs in the collection you can hear the process because Raymond recorded everything he was an engineer he wasn't just a musician and a composer and an arranger and a band leader he was an engineer he was an audio engineer he recorded all his rehearsals and often it seemed like he was 
writing in suite format, S-U-I-T-E, suite format, where there was one passage and then a complete change of tempo, complete change of melody, complete change, almost like he grafted on a different composition. And that would go on for a minute or so. Then you go back to the first part. Many of his quintet works sound like two compositions grafted together. It's a mini suite. So it would be this A-B-A configuration. And apparently Raymond would take these discs home after a day in the studio and listen to them and come back the next day and say, okay, listen to this. I like this here. I don't like this here. And we're going to take this passage and drop it and put in this passage from this other rehearsal disc and try putting this in. You know, he was basically combining passages to build, to construct a composition. And I'm sure it drove his sidemen crazy because he was a stickler for perfection. And he would have them rehearse over and over and over again until they did it the way he wanted it. I spoke to, uh, interviews I've read with musicians who worked with him back in the 30s, they were uh, extremely critical of Raymond as a leader because he, he, had, he insisted on perfection. He could be very sarcastic if someone didn't meet his standards. He would hire and fire with impunity. He, um, he could be pretty brutal and very demanding 
as far as rehearsing goes. Charlie Shavers said he would rehearse the band over and over and over. And Shavers told the interviewer, he says, I think he just liked to hear the band. I mean, I would think that Raymond went out of his way to get guys that could hear something once and totally freeze it, just totally do it the same way every time, particularly when you come out of a tradition of uh, guys playing for Broadway musicals where they play the same thing every night the same way. And, and there's there are guys who could do it. And I, I'm sure – I mean there were so many musicians to pick from them that I'm sure that Raymond gravitated towards those kind of guys. That's why you know, those big bands – you know, the quintet is all studio players. He could have gotten Pee Wee Russell. You know, he could have gotten Bunny. He could have gotten, you know, uh, anybody he wanted for that studio band. Anybody wanted a job. He could have gotten really great jazz players that we've heard of. But instead, he got these guys that could play his music the way he wanted and remember it. I can't take the top one. We're cutting right now. All right. One, two.
You're listening to WZBC 90.3 FM, Boston College. I'm Brian Carpenter. This is Free Association. We're hosting a special tonight on the music of Raymond Scott. It's called Imagination and Innovation. You just heard a few pieces from the late 1930s by the Raymond Scott Quintet. Pretty Petticoat was the one we just played. The piece before that was a rehearsal of Powerhouse. And before that, we had uh, Bumpy Weather over Newark. And the top set off Reckless Night on board an ocean liner. And we had uh, writer Will Friedwald and Erwin Chusid speaking in there as well. Uh, Jeff, we have, a, we have a winner, right? Yeah, Simon Haynes was the first to call in with the correct answers. Congratulations. Jamaica Plain, right? You got it. All right. Let's um, let's talk a little bit more about this 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 method of composing and rehearsing. This mm-hmm. is kind of a really interesting um, thing. I, he we we talked before. He didn't notate the material, which is really incredible yeah. considering the intricacy of it. And the musicians had had to have the patience to learn it that way. Right. I mean, he com- he composed not on paper but on the band, and you hear a little bit of that in the rehearsals mm-hmm. with Powerhouse, and even even this last one. And you could probably speak to that. This last one, yeah. Pretty Petticoat, sounded like it might have been a rehearsal. Definitely. Yeah. You hear him shouting at them while they're playing. Did you guys find this stuff on rehearsal tapes, or how did that? Well, work? there were there was no tape back then. These were um, discs, discs right? that yeah. he recorded himself. He had, always had his own studios, and um, he recorded everything. He that he possibly could, recorded all the rehearsals and then would study them, as Erwin described in that clip. So, um, but the uh, you know the the other main f- attribute of this music is uh, it's not improvised. You know, I mean, right. a lot of people are tempted to call it jazz, but it really isn't jazz. The way Will Friedwald was explaining, because jazz requires such a heavy reliance on improvisation. But like you said, they had to memorize it, and once they played it in that manner they had to keep playing it in that manner every time he didn't allow it to, to, be, to be changed right which must have been exasperating for the musicians oh, I, I, I can't assume. imagine yeah but it made professor scott happy well you know and i was talking to erwin a little bit about this too it reminds me of beefheart who also was famous for rehearsing this way down to the no hours and hours of rehearsal mm-hmm. beefheart also coming up with guitar lines drum right. figures he didn't play drums he didn't particularly play guitar either but he came up with these lines and brian wilson too these are people with with very yeah. strong visions uh that came up with uh their own parts for the band and yeah. actually that that raises the other point which you just mentioned which is these are now with the improvisations this raises another question for you mm-hmm. some of the people have i've talked to have brought this up were the improvisations um improvised once do you think and then raymond said okay freeze it i like that and and keep that improvisation that appears to be the way it worked um there are very very minor differences like a few examples we have where they perform a piece on radio and for maybe like three measures it's slightly different you know Mm -hmm. right um but it's still within that same range it's not right right. it's not wildly different yeah i've heard two takes of some of these yeah and they're they're basically the same essentially essentially the same same solo idea same melodic idea so he might he might have given them like a 10 percent wiggle room for about 10 measures or something you know and 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 i was talking with will about this too and that this and this is kind of unknown is that Actually, at that time, even if you listen to Ellington, some of those solos remain the same or fairly close to yeah. being the same. Um, that's not true now in modern jazz. Everyone, right. you know, you you know, you hear a band live; they're going to be playing different solos every time. But but back in those, especially in the big bands that were touring, mm-hmm. they would find a solo they liked and they would pretty much stick yeah. to it. It kind of makes sense, yeah. you know. 